Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of DDK Pod. Julian here. Just wanted to drop a quick message in because we recorded this episode a few weeks ago to say thank you very much to everybody who listened to DDK Pod and made the show what it was in 2020. 2020 has been a pretty rough year by anyone's standards, so I'm very sorry. And on behalf of everyone else at DDK, I'm very sorry for anything that may have happened to you and your families as a result of the pandemic or just generally it's been a bad year, let's face it, so it can do one. Hopefully next year will be better. 2021 is going to be an exciting year for DDK Pod itself, so stay tuned to us for that. Have a very, very Merry Christmas, a very Happy New Year. Stay safe, love to all of your families, and yeah, let's get on with the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to DDK Pod, the podcast where three guys who founded an IT company talk about IT industry news and topics that interest us. My name is Julian Day, and with me, as always, are my two co-hosts, Jatinda Candola and Will Dalton. How are you guys? Hi there, I'm good. Hope everybody else is good. Good, thank you. Good, good. Excellent. So we'll start with the news. Tinder, do you want to go first with your news story this week? Yep, no problem. It's a bit of a weird story, so I'm just going to set people's expectations there. It's not really IT related, but hopefully it cheers people up to some extent. My story is about an elephant called Happy that is from New York, (laughs) who lives in the Bronx Zoo. Happy the elephant is currently having a court case at the New York Supreme Court represented by the non-human rights animal rights group to contest whether happy is in fact a legal person so there's two possible things that happy could be it's either a person or a property but they're trying to fight that happy the elephant should have a fundamental right to liberty and be allowed to move to a sanctuary in tennessee and move away from the zoo So it's a bit weird as this new story in the first instance, but it's not that weird if you look at it from other things that are being contested like that. So in New Zealand, rivers can be represented as people as well. So just to to kind of set some further craziness around this. The actual case for Happy is that Happy has been living in solitude since uh, 2006. And this animal rights group have been contesting that Happy as an elephant is naturally quite sociable and intelligent and that she has the right to be mingling with other elephants. And that, in fact, in 2005, Happy managed to prove that she could recognize her own reflection and she's known to be the first elephant to do so. So if Happy gets granted a legal persona, she'll pave the way for other animals. That's my story. So we'll have elephants just roaming the streets while we can get on the tube. And they'll get like green cards and stuff in America, I think. Just need to get into a company that can do lanyards big enough to go around elephants next. Go happy, I say. Yeah. Go happy. Go happy. Go happy, yeah. Go 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 for it. Yeah. Presumably we'll also need a, a European court of pachyderm or rights or something like that yeah. as well. I have a suspicion that this is part of uh, the American voting uh, conspiracies, <laughs> that they're putting these kind of stories to the forefront. Oh, did happy vote Trump? Yeah, so it's a Trump voter. Yeah. Or did she vote Trumpity Trump? Yeah, okay. Because be because... Oh, shit. (laughs) Move on. Yeah. So my new story has got nothing to do with elephants uh, or anything like that. So it's the launch of a PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series X and Xbox Series S, I think. There are three new consoles out on the market. So Xbox Series S is a budget version, effectively, of the, the full fat version, which is the Series X. And then PlayStation 5 is coming out. I've always been more of a PlayStation guy myself. In the UK, I think they were released the 19th of November. So it's quite exciting. There's some quite interesting modern tech in the two of them, which leads to some... 
big implications really for the way that games are going to work and digital distribution stuff like that going forwards also some very interesting human computer interaction stuff so the new dual sense rather than dual shock pad that the playstation 5's come out with has been heaped with enormous amounts of praise for the incredible degree of haptic feedback that it gives so when you're holding it if you're sort of bumping over railway tracks or something you feel every every sleeper or something like that through the the vibration and the the fact that the triggers will resist you more and stuff so electrocute you <laughs> yeah it doesn't go that far i don't think unless it's broken oh, uh, and you've got really cross and smacked it against the floor or something <laughs> <laughs> both are much more powerful uh, there's been much more of an emphasis around rather than just sort of raw power it's been much more of an emphasis around convenience i guess for the user so backwards compatibility with older generations of game uh, have become a huge deal load times have become a massive deal so both of them are built with architectures that allow you to either resume very quickly from having a game not booted up or or whatever and load times are incredibly quick so you can load something up faster than even a, a really powerful pc also interestingly if you're a nerd like me anyway both built on amd architectures i believe so definitely team red are, are winning there but yeah it's quite big news it's going to have big implications for pc gaming moving forward so they've got much more of a focus on ray tracing and, and stuff like that so lots of new bells and whistles neither of them have any particularly original games on and most of them are remakes of previous games and reskins at the moment but as uh, as the title starts to come through it should be quite interesting to see how it shapes up between the two of them what are you going to get then? I've always been PlayStation, to be honest, uh, everything, ever since PlayStation 3. So you're getting that, yeah? Uh, well, not yet, because there's not anything I want to play on it yet. I probably will eventually. But it's a step up, is it? It's a big step up. It's a step up in terms of power and processing and graphics. And... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a huge, yeah. huge, huge shift in power. Orders of magnitude more powerful, uh, built on much more modern architecture. Very clever tech inside it. Worth a, worth a read. Probably still not as up to date as a modern pc though every time there's a jump in console generation because obviously consoles have a certain amount of power when they're released and you're basically stuck with that amount for the life of the console unless they do a mid-season refresh like they did with the ps4 pro and even that's you've still got to make sure all the games work on both it tends to be that when a new console generation comes out there is a a significant jump where things catch up to almost being on parity with about mid-range pcs pretty much so stuff like uh, a 2070 Super, I think, would be the equivalent graphics card or maybe somewhere around there, which is, is one generation old. So they're not as powerful as the most powerful gaming PCs, but they are massively closer. So they, they're not ahead, like a lot of headlines will tell you, but they're, they're close. So should lead to a lot more interesting development of cross-party games and stuff like that. So uh, services are starting to merge a lot more on these consoles. You've got things like Microsoft Game Pass now where you can buy a subscription and just get 400-odd games that you can play across both PC and Xbox things. So a lot of these services are, are really starting to change. Mm, it's good. Cross-platform. You can buy a PlayStation without a disk drive, so one that you cannot put any game, any physical media into. Well, how'd you get the game? Digital PlayStation Store. Yeah, digital download of all of them, oh, which okay. is actually how I buy all my oh. games these days, so I don't end up with the boxes cluttering up my house. Anyway, big news. Will, your news story. Hmm. Oh, mine's exciting. So .NET Framework version 5 was out for general release in November. <laughs> that is exciting. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Before you two gets too excited, let me tell you more. .NET Framework is... What is behind the development of and powers the chatbot that's on our website? It basically provides all the gubbins to allow us or one to write software in a particular programming language and then to run it on a particular flavor of server or computer. In our case, that's the computer is in the cloud. .NET 5 is interesting as they are basing it totally on .NET Core, which is a cross-platform and also open source, which is interesting for Microsoft 
cross-platform means you can run it on other things than Windows. And that's important because Microsoft is no longer focused about Windows and Windows only and probably hasn't been for a while, actually, to be fair. They used to devote so much energy in discredited Linux and Mac, and now they're openly embracing it. And I think are a much better company for it. It's also interesting because I grew up on .NET back from its first release back in the noughties. So I well up and get all teary-eyed when I think about it and use it. <laughs> it's not for the cool kids .NET. It's probably used by sentimental geriatrics like myself. Microsoft probably wouldn't like me saying that. Anyway, I like it. <laughs> And it powers some of our stuff. <laughs> There's still quite a niche career in being a .NET developer, though, isn't there? Still, still a call for it, I notice, whenever I do a sweep through the jobs market and stuff. There's quite a lot of .NET development that still goes on, so I can see why they continue to invest in it. So let's move on to this week's topic. Will, you're going to take us through the Tobacco Playbook this week. Yeah, Tobacco Playbook. So I've been listening to How They Made Us Doubt Everything, a Radio 4 series of podcasts. It talks about the tobacco playbook, which is what I want to talk to you about today. It starts by describing the year 1980. Let me take you back to 1988. The hottest summer on record in the US and George Bush, Margaret Thatcher are talking about this great new challenge for the world where everyone is agreeing that something must be done, global warming. And that's 1988. <laughs> Over at Exxon Global HQ, they want to change the narrative of global warming because the fear about the link of climate change to man-made emissions relates back to burning fossil fuels. Not burning fossil fuels means people are not buying their products, which means they don't make money. So they want to change this outcome. Now, the oil companies and other related industries have been so successful in that change that if you fast forward 32 years to now, the thinking has not moved on but in fact has gone into reverse. Half of Americans, sorry to pick on you Americans, <laughs> half, of Amer half of Americans and 15% of American Republican voters believe that climate change is not man-made. What has happened? How did they manage to change the facts to such disastrous results for mankind, but ultimately good for your company's bottom line? Well, it all relates to a playbook that helps you change the way you look at facts. And that playbook was started back in the 50s, the 1950s, by the tobacco industry, when the link between smoking and cancer was scientifically proven. The creation of this playbook was sponsored and endorsed by the leaders of the then major tobacco company, Benson Hedges, Philip Morris, and the like. They hired the owner of a very successful PR company, Hill and Knowlton, and their goal was to fight this new enemy. And the new enemy was science and the proven facts behind the science. And this PR company's theory was that you can't win the battle by making a false claim to those proven facts. So it's sufficient to create doubt or confusion. That was their approach. So they created a plan to create that doubt. And the ultimate purpose of the plan was to, one, delay the formal recognition of the facts for as long as possible. And two, delay any kind of reg regulation and legislation for as long as possible to subsequently, obviously, sell as many cigarettes as possible for as long as possible. <laughs> <laughs> We're back into ethics again. <laughs> uh, we're totally back into ethics, oh, totally. <laughs> and this proves so, to be so successful, used behind the scenes, the manufacture of doubt and to undermine trust in science that they continue to this day to make the product that has killed millions of people around the world. So ultimately, so what was this plan? What is in the tobacco playbook? So this is, this is like the, the script. 
How do you undermine facts? First, establish a legitimate research group on the subject of concern. So for the tobacco industry, it was a tobacco industry research committee. But in fact, it sort of behaves like an anti-research committee. Its sole purpose is to discredit facts. Interesting, a bit of a sidetrack. Remember European Research Agency, Jacob Rees-Mogg was behind this, who's probably the most anti-European Brexit of Brexit champion there is. The high priest of Brexit, one journalist called him. I can't remember who it was, Andrew Neil, maybe. But fronted by an organisation called the European Research Agency. Second, get a fancy office. So in the, in the case of the Tobacco Industry Research Group, it was in the Empire State Building. Third, fill said research agency with highly respected, credible scientists who have deep, passionate involvement in their own research, but is has a relationship to the, to the subject of concern, in this case, the, the link between cancer and tobacco. These people would come to be known as white goats. Why, if... An executive from a tobacco company said that there is no proven link between tobacco. No one's going to believe him or her. If a white coat says the same thing, they are believed. So some of these white coats were researching the relationship between, say, for example, asbestos and cancer, but struggling to get the funding. There is a proven link. So it's a credible piece of research to said tobacco company gives them the funding as a kind mm. of gift to the university. Uh, quite a healthy gift as well, each year to carry on this research and then bring him into this research committee to take attention away from the fact that tobacco causes cancer. So, for example, if I smoked 20 cigarettes a day while living or working within an asbestos-rich environment, what's giving me cancer? Asbestos or 20 cigarettes? You know, it's, it's legitimate research that there is a proven link between asbestos and cancer. You're diluting the message. You're causing confusion. Another prominent scientist who headed up the research group, he was researching how genes caused cancer. And that was his field of expertise. That was his passion. Again, a very legitimate field of research and again has proven links to cancer. So conversations about cigarettes causing cancer, he would bend the conversation to his point. Not everyone who smokes is a heavy smoker, but is there psychological makeup that makes them more susceptible to cancer. If I smoke 20 cigarettes a day, for example, while living or working... I, mean, I think you mean physiological, don't you, rather than psychological? Physiological. I do apologize, yeah. If I smoke 20 cigarettes a day while living and working in an asbestos-rich environment, and I have the, the, that gene makeup that, is, that makes me susceptible to cancer, what is giving me cancer? Is it the cigarettes? Is it the asbestos? Is it the gene makeup that I've got? This then distracts from the facts. It undermines the science with more science. It pits scientists against scientists or white coats against white coats. All that does is sow confusion. People that like smoking, I used to smoke, I like smoking. People that like smoking, they go, fuck it. The science can't agree, I'll carry on smoking. The science can't agree, I'll carry on driving my, my Hummer. The, the experts can't agree, I'll vote Brexit. Do you know what I mean? It just sows that confusion. Right, fourth, schmooze the media. Provide top top notch service, uh, service, engage. <laughs> right, hold on, my wife's calling, and she's not calling anymore. <laughs> <laughs> this is important, damn it! <laughs> to get some more cigarettes. Yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah, at the yeah. shop. Do you want another yeah. twenty packs? <laughs> yeah, twenty beer day. Shush, shush, shush. <laughs> um, schmooze the media. Yeah, pamper them, engage them, work with them. Don't ignore them. Actually, bring them into the fold. That sometimes backfires. Remind me to tell you a story about the advanced passenger train from British Rail, where they loaded up a heavily entertained journalist. So remind me to tell you that story sometimes. Fifth, whenever there was an article proving the link between tobacco and cancer, there was someone claiming completely opposite the same day that article or that claim was released. 
there was a web of informants inside academia, institutions that knew this was coming out so they could prepare their response. That was the playbook. And this was hugely successful at delaying legislation. How much of that do you see now in climate change, in Brexit, the whole of the Trump presidential term, (laughs) vaccinations? How much of that do you see in modern day life now? It's worth saying that ultimately the playbook was undone by litigation. And this takes us to, uh, you know, the tobacco industry when it was in the dock. During the course of the 60s to the 80s, more and more people started to sue tobacco companies for the smoking-related cancers that they were getting, which introduced us to a whole set of other characters who represented the defence of these tobacco companies during this litigation. I mean, one of the characters, Fred Seitz, his approach was to blame smoking on the smokers because in a free country... They have a choice. Uh, And smoking and killing themselves while doing it is that they're right if they want to. (laughs) And they wanted to. And again, that was successful for a number of years, a number of decades. This this professor, Frederick Seitz, he was no slouch. I mean, he was a physicist. He was involved in the Manhattan Project. And in the 60s, he was president of the US National Academy of Scientists. But he had an ulterior motive that that seemed to cloud his thinking. He was deeply anti-communist. And saw that any government intervention was putting us on the slippery slope to the evils of socialism, which was a a major concern in in the US at that time. His defence was successful up to the 90s. The The tobacco company subsequently funded millions in scientific projects that cast doubt on that link between smoking and cancer. The kind of doubt that we talked about before, you know. And then up until the 90s, it was successful until there were a group of air stewardesses sought damages for the lung cancer they got through passive smoking when they were stuck on smoky planes for years on end. If you can believe the fact that you used to be able to smoke above multiple gallons of uh, jet plane fuel, but there you go. (laughs) They were ultimately awarded $350 million and the rest is history. But the campaign for the tobacco companies had been successful for 40 years. That's crazy. Fascinating story. I mean, I think it's There's so many parallels, aren't there, in the modern world, as you say, climate change is still in a similar place. You've got the whole anti-vaxxer movement with this astroturfing thing going on where they're astroturfing being the practice of trying to simulate there being a grassroots movement against something. It's quite a neat little term that. Mm. And yeah, the the whole thing about there being this sort of groundswell of of public opinion and trying to engineer what appears to be a huge amount of public support for something when actually there isn't really public support for it. But that then generates public support because you've made it appear that there's public support. So other people Mm. start following the movement. It's it's crazy Mm. stuff, isn't it? It's um, but it's it's still as relevant today as it was. It's just a different case study now. And stuff like when the Russians were screwing about with their fracking stuff, when they were trying to create a movement that would badmouth fracking. And that was another example I found when I was researching this. So they tried to convince, I think it was the Canadians, that fracking was really, really bad and a really you know thing to be avoided so that they could keep flogging all the natural gas to the Canadians. Because <laughs> they were just like, no, yeah, no, don't let this happen on your doorstep. But it, it was mostly motivated so that they could try and keep a monopoly on the market. It's interesting. I think the, the whole of the tobacco playbook was so deep with very interesting characters and interesting themes and subplots. You could almost make a film out of the thing. It's, it's <laughs> like I can see Matt Damon and Leonardo DiCaprio playing some of the roles in this. But the surprising thing is it's gone on for so long. How, how can it be acceptable for this to go on 
for this many years and still there be so much laxness around the whole of the, the tobacco industry and the governance around these kind of things and how it's been copied as a model or imitated to some extent. So successful, isn't it? Well, here's a question though, is it anymore? Because one thing that, I, that really struck me when I was reading about all of this is how the difference in COVID is that people don't like the white coats and they don't want to listen to them anymore. So it works beautifully as a model for most things. I mean, you've only got to look at what happens when a white coat goes rogue. For example, the MRSA scandal, where somebody puts out some bogus research that links autism to the MRSA jab, and then everybody seizes on it because this guy's a scientist and it gets blown out of all proportion and it takes years to debunk it. And in that time, loads and loads of people have mm. refused to vaccinate their kids and it basically spawned the anti-vaccine movement. So still, to this day, people are suspicious of vaccines when they shouldn't be. Because this white coat effect made it was so powerful that it shaped the future of hundreds of thousands of people, maybe millions of people's destinies. But now with COVID, you get these government advisors coming along and, and people are leaping all over the scientists at the moment going, why didn't they do more? Why didn't they know? Why don't they, you know, why, why, why are we in this mess? It's, it's their fault. Well, no, because they're only working with what data uh, they've got on this brand new virus. But people expect scientists to be akin to God. You know, they just think they're omniscient. Yeah. And if they, if scientists all of a sudden let the side down, I'm doing air quotes here. This isn't a visual medium. But, you know, they're, they're kind of harangued now. If you're a white coat and you didn't get it right, it's like, well, hang on a minute. You're supposed to be magic. How come you didn't get this right? And it's, it, it, I wonder whether the playbook would work now in a post-COVID world. I think um, the, the fundamental approach of the playbook about being able to go and create doubt and then undermine factual information, that is something that we see re being recycled heavily all the time, Yeah. Um, such as the, the scandal with the Cambridge Analytica and the American presidential elections. Yeah, I was just going to say that, actually. Look at what Trump's trying to do at the moment. I won the election, <laughs> yeah. all these ballots yeah. are illegal, and then 70 million people or whatever it is are potentially going to believe him, even though... It's it's demonstrably wrong. And also, just going back to a point that Will made around where they started to become successful cases around suing and trying to get money out of companies around the the consequences of inhaling uh, other people's smoke. I think this, there was a fashion at that point in America, well, predominantly in America, where it was easy to file a case against a big company and get lots of millions of dollars at that point. I think there's a few successful cases against McDonald's for people that had high cholesterol because they had been eating McDonald's for so long. They then somehow attributed it being the problem of McDonald's for not having properly informed them of the risks of eating a Big Mac once a day for the rest of your life or something. So it, it, there, there was a fashion and a trend that had started around the, the 90s, which is probably just being copied across all these different industries where there were successful payouts of millions of dollars. And yeah, it became a, an excuse really almost to, to some extent for, for that to be the, the compensation for society that okay we're not doing everything about it but at least people are starting to, to kind of realize that there's some serious doubt around the credibility between these companies mm. yeah so i suppose if you're just manipulating in the public uh, if you're undermining facts and and doing it deliberately then there's an answer there isn't there you can litigate against that i think if mcdonald's was claiming that a big mac for example, was good for you or didn't make you fat. Do you know what I mean? Then there's a case to be answered there. Yeah. I think if we're at the McDonald's are saying, here's a Big Mac and this is the ingredients in it, and then you eat 10 Big Macs a day, 
yeah. and you become fat and then you litigate against that. I think then, I don't know whether there are cases, you know, whether people have been successful on the back of that. I don't know whether, I, I don't know that one. I don't know whether McDonald's were actually genuinely hiding information or changing information about, for example, a Big Mac. It led to that change where they started to become a bit more open about the ingredients and the content and these new legends that you find. Well, they're not new anymore, but on any kind of food packaging, you'll find the makeup in terms of carbohydrates, sugars, fats and all that kind of stuff. Um, it eventually led to that. I remember when uh, Super Size Me, the Morgan Spurlock film came out and um, I remember, I still remember it clear as day, there being a McDonald's exec who was wheeled out on the BBC News to talk about it. And he said in relation to their meals, um, I think I'm probably ever so slightly paraphrasing, but more or less it was, it's just meat and potatoes. It's what we've been eating for thousands of years. <laughs> <laughs> I've never forgotten that. I must have been about, I don't know, 15 or something when that all came out. But yeah, it's just crazy how, again, you know, there's those attempts to sort of not outright say, no, that isn't true, because then you know, they know that they can't say that. But to, to twist it and to, to introduce yeah. that signal to noise ratio and to use language, which the average person will understand. And that's an interesting point as well, I guess, that people who are who are well-versed in a particular subject, such as your white coats or whatever, sometimes will struggle to make the point about a certain topic, whether it be climate change or vaccination or whatever, as eloquently as a PR machine from a big company, like a cigarette company or something, where you've got a bunch of advertising and marketing and sales specialists who are all trying to discredit the message that a, a nerdy person at the end of the day, you know, somebody who's a very academic person is is putting across. And they have their own language, don't they? I think it's something that we make a big deal of in our company, in DDK, about use of appropriate language for everyone. <laughs> Not counting the swear words on the podcast. We don't use those okay. in the office, I promise. <laughs> But it's a proper problem in the IT industry. It's so full of technical babble and acronyms and overloaded terms that folk just don't understand it and then ultimately don't want to understand it. Yeah, I call it the mother-in-law test. Yeah, well, exactly. And language used by scientists, you know, is local to their industry and people become institutionalised. So the only yeah, people yeah. that understand what that scientist is talking about is another scientist. And the facts then just don't stand a chance with the general public. So ultimately the people... You need to get on your side to make to make a difference. And then when you're pitting a scientist, as you said, Gillian, against a PR someone, someone who's versed in how you communicate effectively with the general public, there's only going to be one winner in that particular conversation, uh, and that's uh, not the scientist. <laughs> or even worse, a politician, somebody whose entire career is about spinning stuff mm. and persuading people or, or lawyers as well, who ultimately are very good at advocating. That's their job, right? To sell a particular narrative to a, to a jury or whatever. So once it goes to litigation, you get into that space where there's these sound bites that are much sexier than the people who actually know what they're talking about are capable of coming out with mm -hmm. potentially. Mm -hmm. I wasn't signaling my mother-in-law out there. It's an actual <laughs> example. So I said to her, I'm a solution architect. I'm a technical architect. And she looked at me and said, don't architects design bridges? That's why I call it the mother-in-law test, because it's a perfect example. Proper ones do. <laughs> well, yes, indeed. <laughs> Let's not get started on whether architect <laughs> is the right term, but you know what I mean, right? So, so there's this whole thing around language and, and how powerful it is, and the ability to cajole and convince people is almost of higher value than the facts sometimes. And you've only got to look, again, I'm, I'm, I feel a little safer singling him out this week, given that he's lost the election, but you've only got to look at Trump who has his own very unique style, but he's able to convince people of his alternative facts. And that is more 
it's worth more in the minds of the people who want to listen to his narrative than the actual science, than, than what the White Kurtz have to say. It's true. The message is worth more than the fact. Yeah, indeed. And it's very difficult to be... It's very difficult to put objective measures and evaluations of, uh, of scientific facts across to a public who are led by emotions, what they want to hear, and so on and so forth. You can't expect everybody to evaluate scientific evidence when they haven't been trained in the scientific method to understand to, and interpret that data in the correct way. That's the tricky bit. Well, maybe. Or is it up to the scientists to make sure that the general public understand what they're banging on about. I mean, it's up to us in our industry to make sure that we're communicating effectively and using the appropriate words and not diving down into techno babble where we'll basically, we would just lose everyone. Yeah, I mean, that's the principle around which we founded DDK, isn't it? That's why we came mm. together because we think it is our responsibility to bridge that gap and make sure there isn't that sort of, uh, what's the right word, semantic dissonance or something? You know, that there isn't a gap Dysentery. between- <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the verbal diarrhea that we've all got. No, but uh, that it, we've founded a company around the idea that we don't want to do that, right? And and a lot of people still do. I'll give you some of the words. So that this is why we're still struggling to get the facts across now with climate change. And and there's some of the words that the scientists use. It's like a theory is a fact, but it's it's a theory is a fact, but it's called a theory in the science world. But theory to us, mere mortals, is an idea, isn't it? It's an idea that is proposed, but still needs to be proven. Yeah. So when they talk about theory, climate change theory, they're talking about it's a fact man-made is causing the world to heat up. We're thinking, okay, well, they haven't, it's a theory, so therefore it might not be. And the same soft words that they use, like uncertainty and likely, are used in the science world. But for me, they speak of it may happen, but equally it may not. But again, that's not the case. And it's that choice, it's those choices of words that in the science world mean something, but in the real world, it means something else. There's no one doing that. They're not doing the translation. There's no one else doing that translation for something so important. You'd think they would try and get the message right. Yeah. We will have to leave that one there, chaps. Good chat. Like that a lot. Uh, let's move on to the recommendations section of the show. Tinder, do you want to go first this week? Yep. So my recommendation ties back to something I made a cheeky comment about in one of our previous podcasts. So Will mentioned a company called Palantir Technology, and I said that I'm going to buy their shares. And I did actually buy their shares. <laughs> and this week they shot up. In the last two days, they shot up by 6%. Where is your moral compass, man? <laughs> we just did a three-part series on ethics. We've just done a whole three for <laughs> I now remember why it was mentioned. At least give us a cut. <laughs> but yeah, so Arc Investments is a big uh, company that's invested into Palantir Tech. And uh, yeah, 6% in two days. <laughs> so that's your recommendation, buy, share, buy shares in Palantir, is it? I, I object to that. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't what I was expecting you to come out with. Quite funny. Yeah. Will, do you want to try and <laughs> drag us kicking and screaming back into <laughs> back into some semblance of order? Not sure I can after that one. Mine's my recommendation. So it's another Microsoft product, although another acquired Microsoft product. Minecraft. Blimey. Little Archie, my son, has gone nuts for Minecraft. I know it's been around a, a while since a friend introduced him to it, bless him. So that was when he was six and he's now seven. Basically, I've heard of Minecraft. I don't know if you guys have. Yeah, I've played it quite a bit. Yep. Massive. But I've never really paid it much attention and I still try not to pay it much attention. But it's coming increasingly difficult when Archie is telling me every waking hour that he is what he's built, uh, what he's going to build or what I'd like him to build. 
Generally, yeah, the general purpose of the game is simply to build and explore and survive in a survival mode that sounds a bit more dark. Archie is in the creative mode. Uh, and off you go. And he's now playing Minecraft, watching Minecraft on YouTube with some pretty annoying characters and watching Minecraft series on TV and seem to be complimenting Minecraft Lego from grandparents on Christmas. Oh, my God. I think if I gave him crack cocaine, it would be less addictive for him. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting, though, actually, because Minecraft is actually used as a, an educational tool in some places, and you can mm. build entire computers inside Minecraft using the logic blocks, which mm. kind of represent valves that would be in a computer and, and stuff like that. There's these blocks with special minerals in that you can use to turn on and off depending on certain states. And people have built in the creative mode entire computer architectures as they would be in the real world, but using these funny little blocks in Minecraft. So it's if you if he's going to play a game, it's probably better than Grand Theft Auto or something <laughs> in terms of educational value because there's Absolutely. so much building and and creativity and and stuff that you can learn about physics and things from Minecraft and computing. It's fascinating when you do some reading on it. There's a couple of good articles. I'll see if I can find one of them at some point. It's a huge time suck though, isn't it? Because it's it's an open world. It's just like, that's... Oh, terrible for him. It's procedurally generated, yeah, as well. So there's an infinite number of worlds that you can experience. Huge, huge game. One of the biggest games in the world, actually, I think it's all. I think maybe Fortnite's beaten it now, but, but yeah. So my recommendation this week is the Nintendo Switch. I hinted that I was going to do it last week, but I've now had it for long enough that I feel confident in recommending it. It's very good. I like it a lot. So I wasn't sold, it's fair to say. I've got the full fat version, which you can dock onto your telly, and I was a little bit not sold on whether or not that was going to be any good, but it actually is. It's very good, and it automatically deals with all the resolution and aspect ratio and everything. It's obviously nowhere near as powerful as the more stationary consoles, but I tell you what, there's something pretty special about being able to yank the heart out of your console underneath the telly whack a couple of controllers on the side of it and then play it on the train so i can see why it sold as many units as it has i think it's a bit less wacky than the last two the wii and the wii u both of which i had but yeah very good product i've been seriously impressed by it so far the games are quite expensive when you go to buy them but or they or rather they retain their value so they're about 50 quid each something like that some some of the more classic ones are coming down in price a little bit and you do need quite a lot of peripherals and bits and pieces so it, it doesn't come with a separate charger you have to use the dock thing under the telly to charge it up or a USB-C cable doesn't come with a controller that's really any good to use on the TV so in theory you have got to go and buy one of them but yeah good good little machine lots of good games on it so yeah I'm enjoying it Good fun. What's this unique selling point then? It's it's yankability. Pretty much, yeah, if that's the way you want to put it. So the fact that hmm. you can seamlessly as well, so even if you're in a game, you could be playing it on the sofa and then you can take it, walk across the room and drop it into a slot on a sort of plastic dock and it will click into the bottom of the console, which is actually the little tablet device that you've got in your hands. Obviously, there's nothing in the dock itself. It's just a lump of plastic that allows it to connect. And as soon as the console recognizes that it's been connected up to a television and it's got an HDMI output input cable shoved into it, it will then immediately detect the television and project the image up onto the TV. And then you can snap the two controllers that are attached to the console off and hold them in your hands and they'll connect by Bluetooth. And you can walk back across the room and either stick those into a little sort of holster thing that allows you to use it like a PlayStation or an Xbox controller, or you can have another controller that you buy separately that you use for playing on the telly. And then when you want to leave the house, you just yank the tablet out of the dock seamlessly and it goes back into the tablet mode again so that you can play it on the go. Quite nifty. Mm. Awesome. 
So chaps, I think that's the show. Thanks very much. If you guys out there want to get in touch with us, you're more than welcome to do so. We'd love to hear from you. We are available on Twitter at DDK Limited. That's at DDK Limited. You can email the show at ddkpod at ddklimited.com. That's ddkpod at ddklimited.com. We're also available on LinkedIn at Dalton Day Candola. So thanks very much, guys. Nice chat this week and uh, catch you guys again next time. Cheers. Cheers. I want some of that money from Palantir, JK. Okay.